This is Getting to Know Your Bible, a program dedicated to the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's Billy Lambert. It is a genuine pleasure to have you tune in to watch Getting to Know Your Bible today. Some of you are watching for the very first time, and may I welcome you to the telecast. I'm Billy Lambert. I'm the regular speaker on Getting to Know Your Bible. And it's such a joy to have you watching today. We are offering today a free Bible correspondence course. I emphasize the course is free. We'd like for you to avail yourself of the opportunity of having this as a study guide in your private study of the Bible. And it will cost you nothing. We're going to pause long enough for you to learn more about the course and how you can receive it. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580. Or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214. I read somewhere about a town that was built in a rather unusual way. That there was a spring that was discovered, and it was found that that spring had in it certain medicinal qualities. When when people would bathe in that spring in this warm water that they would help them in a physical way. And people began to come from all over the country to bathe in the waters of that spring. So someone began to reason like this, you know, so many people are coming. We, we need to build a place that, where people can find something to eat. Someone built a restaurant. Someone else said, well, what we need to do is we need to build a motel where people will have a place to stay should they want to stay more than one day. And so eventually, there were several motels and there were several restaurants, and someone got the brilliant idea of building a housing development because people might want to move there and live there so they could have access to the springs almost every day if they so desired. It wasn't long until there was a large, thriving community built up around that spring. A visitor came to town one day and he asked one of the residents, how did this town get started? Do you have any idea? He said, you know, I have no idea how it got started. And so the man began to inquire and he learned that the town grew up because people were flocking to the spring. But because of time passing by, they forgot the purpose of why the town was there. Sometimes we forget the reason for certain things. And I've often thought about in Christianity, we just need to go back to the spring. We need to go back to the reason for certain things. We need to go back to the beginning of certain things. So suppose that 
men ceased to play the game of baseball for 150 years. How, and, and someone were to find the rule book and that says the rules for playing the game of baseball, and so how could you have baseball and, and, and play the game of baseball that had not been played for 150 years, but you say, well, you take the rule book. That's a simple thing. You just follow the rules in the rule book, even though they're 150 years old, follow the rules. You can play the game of baseball. Suppose that men were to find Noah's Ark. You know, people are always thinking they're finding Noah's Ark. And suppose they were actually to find Noah's Ark. And someone says, well, why don't we restore Noah's ark to as near the original condition of the ark as we can possibly do it? How would they do that? Well, you say, well, they would have to go to the Bible and find out some of the conditions of the building of the ark and follow that. And, and, and they might be able to restore the ark of Noah that has been hidden for thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, and they might have it restored so people can look at it today. Well, just suppose that the church ceased to exist. It ceased to exist for a long period of time. Maybe it hadn't existed in 200 years. Nobody even uses the word church anymore because they've forgotten all about it. There's no church of any kind, of any sort, of any name that exists anywhere in the world. But one day a group of people follow, find a, a book called the Bible and they start reading it together and they find out that it describes within the pages of that book a church. And they read more in that book and they wonder, well, that seems such like a wonderful idea and it seemed to do so much good. There were actually letters written to some of the congregations and the churches in that in the New Testament, how could we have it in the world today? How do you suppose that we could restore the church of the Bible in the 20th century if it had gone out of existence, say, for the last 200 years? W would it sound unusual to you if I were to say, all we have to do is just go back to the spring? We, we need to go back to the book that tells us all we need to know about the church. And if we were to follow everything that it says in the Bible about the church, just go back to the spring, we could have it in the world today. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 4 and 11, Peter says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's, that's good advice for preachers today, don't you think? They need to be speaking as the oracles of God, as the teaching of God. Tell men and women what God says. Not what you think, not how you feel. So how, how, how would we go back to the spring? Well, if we were to go back to the Bible, that is, go back to the spring, we, we would learn that the beginning of the church was actually predicted. It was predicted. It was predicted in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, the second chapter, we read about four great world empires. There was the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire during the days of Alexander the Great. And then there was the prediction about the coming of the Roman Empire. 
And in Daniel 2.44, the Bible says, In the days of these kings, that is, in the days of that fourth great world empire, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and it, it, it shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. It shall stand forever. So the beginning was predicted. Well, where was it to begin? Well, we'll also read about the beginning of it in, by way of prediction in the second chapter of Isaiah and in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people will go and say, Come, let's go up to the house of the Lord, to the mountain of the God of to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways. He will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And it was in the days of those Roman kings in the city of Jerusalem, recorded in your Bible in the second chapter of Acts, that the church had its beginning. It was on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 1. And it was on that occasion that Peter preached the first recorded gospel sermon under the worldwide commission, that is, the commission to go preach the gospel to every creature. And there were those, some 3,000 people that became Christians that day, and they were added to the Lord, to the church by the Lord, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. So we go back to the spring, we learn that its beginning is predicted. But when we go back to the spring looking for the church of the Bible, we find out its builder was specified. Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi in the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And he asked men the question, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they had all kinds of ideas. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're Elijah. But he asked the question, whom do, whom do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I, that's Jesus, will build, future tense, my church. Jesus said, I will, will build my church. Jesus was its builder. You see, if we go back to the Bible, we go back to Matthew chapter 16, we find that the builder of the church is specified. And Jesus said, I will build my church. He did not say churches as of many. He said church as of one. He said, I will build my church. And this was pre-denominational Christianity. Denominations do not exist at all when Jesus made this statement. So here's what we've learned by going back to the spring, going back to the Bible. The beginning of the church was predicted. It would begin in the city of Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Its builder has been specified. Jesus Christ is its builder. I know that I'm not to build a church. No man is to build a church. Jesus is its builder. And the third thing I learned by going back to the Bible is that the bedrock foundation for the church has been laid. Foundation of anything is important. 
and the foundation of the church was laid, which is Jesus. It built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 says, Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Actually, there's a prophet in the book of prophecy about this in Isaiah the 28th chapter and verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not uh, act hastily. And so the foundation is Jesus. Listen to Acts chapter 4 and verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Neither is there salvation in any other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the foundation stone. Jesus Christ is the bedrock. Now maybe that's the reason Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. The church is not built upon Peter. The Greek word for Peter is Petros, which means a small pebble, small stone. The, Jesus used the word rock, which is Petra, which means a boulder, a huge stone. The church is not built on a small stone. It's built on a large stone, and that large stone is Jesus. You say, well, what does that mean? Upon this rock I will build my church. Well, Peter had just made a confession about Jesus. What was the confession? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was upon the bedrock truth that Peter had acknowledged, had confessed, the church was to be built. The fact that Jesus Christ was deity, that he was God in the flesh, that he was the Son of God. It, and so that's the bedrock foundation for the church. And the foundation of a building is so important. It is built upon a solid rock. Jesus is that rock. Now, there are three things that we've learned by going back to the Bible about the church that we're trying to, we're trying to imagine. It hasn't existed for 200 years. We want to go back to the Bible to see what it has to say about it. We're going back, as it were, to the spring to learn why the, the town has been built around that spring. And, and now we have seen this beginning was predicted. The builder was specified and the bedrock foundation was laid. Now the fourth thing we learn by going back to the Bible is that it was bought with blood. Now that might sound strange to us because you see we're just learning this. We're just reading this out of the Bible. Well, we learned that Jesus did purchase the church. And he purchased it with blood. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, Paul said, You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We belong to God by right of purchase price. He paid the price with his son's blood. In Acts the 20th chapter, Paul is addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus. And this was a farewell speech, and he's, he's trying to urge them and encourage them about future things when he's gone. And he says to them, Take heed unto yourselves and all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, 
which he hath purchased with his own blood. Think about Jesus on that cross. Think about Jesus with nails in his hands and in his feet, a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus dying on that cross. Jesus died on that cross because he loved the church so much. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. If you read out of the New King James, he says, who gave himself for her. The church is the bride of Jesus and Jesus is the husband. And so he's the husband of the family and, he's a, and he is the, the husband of the wife and the wife is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation chapter 22, John said the spirit and the bride say come. The bride is the church say come. You see, Jesus Christ loved the church and he died to make the church a reality. It's blood bought. Bought with the blood of Jesus. Men today belittle the church. They speak disparagingly of the church. They neglect the church. They are lukewarm toward the church. But how could we ever be lukewarm? How could we ever disparage? How could we ever mock? that which is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you persecute Jesus, you persecute the church. You remember in Acts the ninth chapter when Jesus asked Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How was Saul persecuting Christ? Well, you go back to Acts chapter 8, and Saul was making havoc of the church. Saul was part and parcel of those who were putting Christians in prison and killing Christians. He persecuted Jesus by persecuting the church. So today, when you persecute the church, when you persecute Christians, it's just like you're persecuting Jesus because the church is his bride. That's his bride. And it was purchased with his blood. The love Jesus had for the church was so sacrificial. And when I think about the sacrifice Jesus made for the church, and, and then I think about myself, and I ask myself, what sacrifices are you making for the cause of Jesus Christ? And I feel so small sometimes because I'm, I'm afraid that I don't make any kind of a sacrifice compared to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for the church to be a, a reality. But we learn from this that the church was blood-bought. The blood of Jesus Christ is confined to his spiritual body. Uh, a so-called scholar in Nashville, Tennessee, made this statement, and I read this statement, not even the New Testament church is important. There was a very popular evangelist in Texas who was speaking to a group of young people that were gathered in a coliseum. We've sort of made an end run around the church. You see, men disparage the church. But, but, but you cannot make an end run around the church without making an end run around Jesus. 
And the church is just as important as the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus is just as important as the blood of Christ because Jesus thought it was worth his life's blood. He died to make it a reality. So that's another thing we learn by going back to the Bible. But then number five, we see that there is a blueprint for its operation. And there's even a blueprint of how we become part and parcel of the church. How is the church organized? How is it organized today? Someone says, well, you know, we have our headquarters in such and such a place, and, and I get my orders from headquarters about what I'm to preach and, and how long I'm to stay and so forth. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, people. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. That put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Who's in charge? Sometimes people want to know that. Who's in charge around here? Let me tell you who should be in charge of the church and who is in charge. Jesus is in charge. I remember preaching one time in a place and, and it was evident to me that the preacher wanted to be in charge. He wanted to be in charge. I, I don't guess it ever occurred to him that it was his attitude that was causing people to leave that church in droves. And it wasn't until something was done about him that the church began to thrive again because God never intended for a man, a human being, to be in charge of the church on this earth. I do not care how many people may think that, how many people may believe that. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and he is the only head of the church. It is from my head, that is from my mind, from my uh, ability to think and to reason, that, that I get the instructions for how my body is to operate. I'm moving my hand now, and you see my hand moving because my head is telling my hand to move. Now I'm going to tell my hand to stop. And so I got the directions to how I operate in my physical body from the head. And it is from the head, that is Jesus, who has authority that, I, uh, that the body of Christ, the church, is to operate. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he is the only head of the church. And so you, you stop and you think about a chart. And we're going to look at the organization. And at the top, you've got Jesus, head. Now, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to the saints which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, let's think about the word bishop, first of all. The word bishop is the same is talking about the same office as is used in other places where the word elder is used, where the word overseer is used, where the word shepherd is used, 
where the word presbyter is used and where the word pastor is used, all referring to one and the same. And here in Philippians 1, there were those that there were bishops in the church and there was a plurality of bishops to the bishops which are at Philippi. A plurality. God never intended for one man to rule and reign over the local church. There ought to be a group of men who are referred to as the pastors, the elders, the bishops, the overseers, the presbyters. Those are one and the same. They're the shepherds of the flock. And they have responsibility to make sure that the flock is well led and well fed. So you have that in the local church. And God intended that every church have its own elders. Titus chapter 1 and 5, Paul told Timothy, Titus rather, For this cause I left thee in order that you might set in order things that are wanting and ordain elders, ordain elders, plural, in every, in every church, in every city. Every church in every city ought to have its own elders. The church of which I am a member has four men who serve as elders and their qualifications that they must meet that are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, to serve as elders of the church. And so there are four of them, a plurality. And there is a reason for that so that no one man will assume the role of being the head of the local church. God, Jesus is the head of the church overall. And in the local church, there are to be elders, but then there are deacons. And deacons are not junior elders. I've heard that phrase used sometimes. But they are those who help the elders carry out the work of the church. The word deacon simply means someone who's working. I remember the definition that my Greek teacher used. He said in the original language it means that he who stirs up dust. He is so busy that he just leaves a, trust, a trail of dust behind him. The deacon is to be a worker in the kingdom, helping those who are the overseers. And then, of course, there are the members of the church. That's the organization of the church. And so we have the, Jesus is the head of the church, and they have elders who are the overseers of the church. And being an elder of the church or a bishop or a pastor in the church carries with it tremendous responsibility. You do not have a pastor. You have, may have several pastors in the church. And obey them that have the rule over you. That they, that, that they, because Hebrews 13 and 17 says that as they that must give an account. In Hebrews 13, 17, we learn that elders, presbyters, pastors, bishops are going to give an account to God on the day of judgment for the souls of those over whom they have charge. But what about the terms of entering into the body of Christ, that is the church? Well, Jesus is the door into it. He even said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any, any man enter in, he shall be, shall be saved, shall go in and out, and shall find pasture. That is, he'll have all the privileges and blessings uh, 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 that are afforded to those who enter into the door and enter into Jesus Christ. And to enter in that door, we must believe in Jesus. We must be willing to repent of all of our sins, confess that we believe in Christ, baptize into Christ, and then we enter into that door and we are added to the church by the Lord, Acts chapter 2, and verse 47. Well, our time is up for today, and may God bless you for tuning in to watch Getting to Know Your Bible. 
And until we meet again, may the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you, is my prayer. Getting to Know Your Bible has been presented by Churches of Christ. If you have a question about the church, or if you would like the location of a Church of Christ near you, or to receive the free Bible course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama 36580, or call 1-877-711-5214. Join us next time for Getting to Know Your Bible.